Morning, church family. Thank you for coming this Sunday morning to Desert Hills Baptist Church. How many of you are excited about the Super Bowl this today, right? Anybody's excited? How many are rooting for the Chiefs? Anybody rooting for the Chiefs? Who's rooting for the Eagles? Woo! Who doesn't care? Woo! <laughs> I think uh, quite a few of us are in that boat. Uh, I don't think the Lions, my team, have ever been to a Super Bowl. Never, ever in my lifetime have the Detroit Lions been to a Super Bowl. And uh, this year, I thought there might be a little bit of a chance. I mean, there's always a chance. And we ended up winning, I think, like uh, eight of the last nine games or seven of the last eight games. And uh, didn't start so well, but we ended up uh, in that place. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, whatever happens this afternoon, I know you have your teams it really doesn't matter, right? Uh, we'll have another Super Bowl next year. There will be another NCAA championship in March, and, and it'll go on. Time will go on. But what may make a difference is what we learn here today from God's Word. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We continue in this uh, series called Reconstruction this morning. And uh, the sermon is entitled, Reconciling the Goodness and Love of God with Pain, Suffering, and Loss. We talked about three reasons why people deconstruct. This is one of them. Another one is uh, ethereal faith or faith just in the head. And as you see in the pages of the Bible, instead of the pages of one's life, instead of experiential faith. And then the third one is inconsistencies in, in Christians and Christian leaders and in the presentation of the truth, and that'll be the last or the second to last week there. Now, um, if you did not get a chance to hear or see the first message, please go to our YouTube channel and listen to the message and also the roundtable discussion later this week. Now, we all have friends and family who have so many questions about their faith that it has seemingly led them away from it. Now, remember, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Now, some may totally reject everything they once believed, never to return again. And some may have a period where they go away and then later come back. As I mentioned last week, 66% of 18 to 22-year-olds uh, leave the faith for at least one year between the age, like I said, between the ages of 18 to 22. Now, some never come back, and we understand that's a reality that we're facing here today. But my hope and prayer for this series is that we can encourage you on your faith journey and give you some answers so that you can be equipped to answer those who themselves are doubting. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. But how do we answer questions like, if God is good, why do people suffer? Or, if God is good, why did I witness my mom, my husband, my child, my wife suffer an agonizing death from cancer? If God is good, why did over 25,000 people die in an earthquake in Turkey and Syria? If God is love, why does it seem like so many Christians are full of hate? If God is love, why does it seem like when I need him most, he's nowhere to be found? 
Now, many have struggled with questions like this and others. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that I can answer every question that everyone has. But I can offer some perspective to many of the questions we have about life and God. Now, even the great psalmist of Israel, David, had questions about God. In fact, if you've ever read the Psalms, you, you find out that many of them are filled with questions. Psalm 13, David says, How long will thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Now, we've all had questions about things we cannot explain. One author writes, For Terry, it started in Sunday school. Terry's teacher started touching her. His orange-red mustache quivered as he fondled her body, and to this day, she shudders when she sees a mustache of that color. His fondling led to rubbing that led to more, but she doesn't like to talk about it. During and after the nightmare her abuser orchestrated, Terry lived in shame. She asked questions many survivors ask, what's wrong with me? Is this my fault? Should I tell someone? Will anyone want me now? Is life worth living? She also asked questions of faith. Where is God? Doesn't he care? If God loves me, why didn't he stop what was happening to me? As long as he can remember, James struggled with depression. In periods of darkness, uh, he could not leave his bed. His hair fell out and his weight ballooned. His thoughts fluttered from anger to apathy to suicide. James tried therapy and medication. He fasted and prayed. His family did their best to love and support him, but depression followed him relentlessly. James knew the Bible better than most. He'd memorized countless verses and taught his children to trust in the good book. While he never seriously doubted the Bible or God, he did have questions. What's happening to me? James asked a mentor one afternoon over coffee, uh, was he paying the consequences of his sin? Was this his parents' fault? Was his brain damaged in a way that God wouldn't heal? Why did God allow depression? An inquisitive mind led James to question the less courageous dare not ask, does God allow depression? One year after Christmas, James drove to a lake, put a shotgun to his head, and pulled the trigger. The coroner said he died instantly. A hunter found him in his blood splash pickup. James' family now asked questions he'd been asking. Why didn't God intervene? Couldn't God have jammed the shotgun and prevented this atrocity? Is depression a disease God will not heal? James' wife asked a particularly difficult question. If God has a plan for everyone, was suicide his plan for James? If God doesn't want suicide, she wondered, why didn't he stop it? Maria and her husband, Ted, desperately wanted children. Maria had been doing the right things to, to make it happen. She cared for her body. She watched her diet. She made healthy choices. 
She took vitamins and saw specialists, but could not carry a child full term. Maria's third miscarriage was especially awful. On that day, she sat on a toilet and cried for an hour. Ted found her after coming home from work. He lay on the bathroom floor, curled in a ball, and sobbed with her. The people at church offered plenty of explanations. The demons are interfering, said an elderly man. You're possessed. An elder said God allowed miscarriages to make Maria a better person. God never gives us more than we can handle, he said, and this will help you to mature. According to him, miscarriages were divine strategy for building Maria's character. This alleged divine plan did not work. Maria resents God and she despises the church. Maria has grown bitter, not better. One afternoon as a 10th grader, Rashad came home to his father vomiting blood on his black and white checkered shirt. A few trips to the doctor confirmed the family's fear, cancer. About a month later, he died. During that month, everyone prayed. Rashad, his father, the family, their pastor, and friends. Saints prayed, fully believing that God could heal. The family tried every ritual, anointing with oil, fasting, baptism, uh, healing ceremonies. The faithful showed no lack of faith. At the funeral, Rashad heard an array of answers for why his father died. God's ways are not our ways, said some. Who are we to question God? Giving thanks in all things, said others. God is in control. We need evil to realize we need salvation. And everything happens for a reason. In the years that followed, the family suffered emotionally, financially, and spiritually. Rashad grew timid and insecure. He was mired in crippling uncertainty. If this is what God wants, Rashad said one day, I don't want anything to do with them. Rashad had been taught that God was a loving father. But here's a question he asked. What kind of parent allows his child to suffer just to teach him to seek help? Help from the parent who allowed the suffering in the first place. That's not the logic of love, Rashad said. That's manipulation. If God allows evil he could stop, why do we need him? Rashad said. These are the feelings that many have had in trying to reconcile the goodness of God with pain and suffering and loss. Why? Why do people feel pain, suffering, and loss? This question has caused too many to deconstruct away from God because they seemingly can't find the right answers. Pain and suffering. We enter this world through pain and suffering of a woman in birth. William Blake wrote, My mother groaned, my father wept, into the dangerous world I leapt. Our first reaction at birth is a loud cry of fear and grief and shock. Years later, we exit the world oftentimes through pain and suffering. Between birth and death, pain and suffering are always near our door. In fact, Job, the prophet, said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. That may seem fatalistic, but the fact of the matter is, it, all, it comes to our door all too often. Now, pain and suffering remind us that something is wrong. 
Something is not as it should be in our world. So how do we reconcile pain and suffering and loss with the goodness and love of God without leaving the faith? I believe, first of all, we need to understand a misunderstanding in perspective. We often blame God for things that are not his fault. I want you to see a human perspective. One author writes, years ago, Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean opponent with a hard right to the head. At a press conference after the Korean boxer's death, Mancini said, sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. In a letter to a family counselor, a woman asked uh, this anguished question. Four years ago, she said, I was dating a man and became pregnant. I was devastated. I asked God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? Susan Smith, the South Carolina mother who several years ago uh, pushed her two sons into a lake to drown and then blamed a fictional carjacker for the deed, wrote in her confession, I dropped to the lowest point when I allowed my children to go down that ramp into the water without me. She said, I took off running and screaming, oh no, oh God, God, please, what have I done? Why did you let this happen? Now the question remains, Exactly what role did God play in a boxer beating his opponent to death, a teenage couple giving into temptation in the backseat of a car, or a mother drowning her children? Is God responsible for these acts? No. Absolutely not. And what we need to understand, God gets blamed for things that are ultimately not his fault. God does not force our hands let me ask you to think about this as a human being. Has God ever forced your hand? Has God ever forced your mouth to stay closed when you wanted to open it and just get something off your chest? Did God keep you from honking on your horn when you were in traffic and somebody cut you off? Does God quell instantly the thoughts of anger and say, No, Adam, stop. You're an idiot. God doesn't force our hands. In fact, he's given us all free will. And I believe in an understanding that, imagine if we didn't have it, we'd be like automatons, little robots, walking around society, obeying every one of his commands. Yes, it would be a different society. Yes, it might be an idyllic world, but it wouldn't be the same. No, God does not force our hands. He has given us each the capacity to make choices, and sometimes we lash out at him because of the choices we or others make. Secondly, there's another misunderstanding in perception. We see a biblical perception. We have pain and suffering and loss as a result of sin entering into this world. Now, in the garden at the beginning of time, everything was perfect. In fact, after God created everything, the Bible said it was very good. Everything was very good. And Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day while they worked the garden at the other time, but it wasn't enough. 
And Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and it ended up putting a curse upon, upon all mankind ever since. In fact, the Bible tells us that God said to Adam and his descendants, it says, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thy return unto the ground. The world is cursed. And we don't help any as human beings by sinning and defiling and perpetuating what originally brought the curse upon the world. And the Bible tells us in our text that as a result of this, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Everything in creation groans. Every cell on the planet has been affected. Every human being, every animal, every insect, every plant, and even the ground is, is experiencing right now the ravages and the results of the curse. The whole creation groans and endures in pain and is suffering from the effects brought upon it by sin. And that's why we have earthquakes in Turkey and Syria that kill tens of thousands of people. And that's why we have tsunamis that kill tens and thousands of people. And that's why we have sickness and disease and birth defects and cancer and divorce and death. The whole creation groans because this world is cursed. And as a result of sin entering the world, everything that God created as good is ruined and suffers as a result and will suffer until God redeems it. Now we see another biblical perspective. Biblical perception, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we will suffer less. Did you get that? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we'll suffer less. Now in our text, God uses Paul to acknowledge his own suffering and the suffering of believers here in Romans chapter eight. But in Romans chapter 7, he spoke of his suffering and struggle with sin when he wrote these words. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members." And then he writes this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? It pained Paul to understand his struggle with sin. He suffered as a result of this constant thing hanging over his head, wondering if when he was going to do good, he would do wrong, or when he was uh, doing wrong, he should be doing good. And it was a struggle, and it pained him in his heart. And then he writes... For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now he's speaking of persecution, he's speaking of sickness, he's speaking of tragedies, he's speaking of, I believe, even his own struggle with sin in the context, including chapter 7. And he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time the church at Rome was enduring all of these things. They were enduring sufferings 
And right now, some of you might be as well. And I don't know. I don't know what they are. Sometimes everything may seem all right on the outside, but on the inside, someone's dying. Someone languishes in pain. Someone suffers. Someone's struggling. I want you to understand that God will stand with us in our pain, but He doesn't always remove it. Our pain isn't decreased because we believe, but our faith can keep pain and suffering from incapacitating us. Now, today we have another problem amongst Christians, the prosperity gospel, where preachers will stand up and try to get believers to believe that God doesn't want you to be sick, and God doesn't want you to be poor, and God doesn't want you to be unhappy, and God doesn't want you to be unemployed. God wants you to be healthy and rich and happy and employed. And when they aren't healthy and rich and happy, people assume that God doesn't exist or that he has let them down like everyone else. Now, sometimes we get the idea that we want to wear our Christianity on our lives like some amulet that wards off evil. Now, Paul was probably one of the more sincere Christians that ever lived. God used him to write 14 of the 27 New Testament books, and he suffered. In fact, he physically suffered with some malady that debilitated him at times. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. But God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. You see, here was one of the more sincere Christians that ever lived, and yet he suffered. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about all of the persecutions and all of the tragedies and all of the heartaches that he endured. I mean, here was a man that suffered like probably no other. Janet Willis said, I used to think that I wanted to stay close to God so nothing bad would happen. When her van crashed on a Wisconsin freeway and six of her children died, she grew close to God because she needed him. Now he became not a means to prevent harm, but the only way for her to survive. Now this week, when the small groups met uh, for discussion, the subject of the upcoming topics came up in the small group, uh, and, and this sermon was brought uh, in discussion, uh, how can you reconcile the goodness and love of God with pain, suffering, and loss? And then the group, the specific group, began talking about God being the one they turned to in trying or traumatic times. And they realized this, they had enough life that had been lived. They realized that they had no other place to turn. The irony is that people sometimes blame God for trials and troubles when He's the only one that can give them the peace that they need as they're experiencing those trials, troubles, and that pain and suffering. Now, secondly, how to understand pain and suffering and loss that we experience. Now, how do we understand it? 
Let me illustrate here for just a second. How many of you remember these? These are the old Polaroid cameras. These, this is a, something similar. This is not a Polaroid. This is a Fuji. What is our world coming to, right, when you can't get a Polaroid camera? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a picture. Everybody smile for me this morning. Everybody smile. All right. I got, let me back up a little bit here. Watch out for all this instrumentation. Let me see. I got most everybody. Here it goes. Oh, it's a little one. Remember the big ones? You used to have to wait like 10 minutes. You have to shake them back and forth. Now, here we are. It's coming up. This beautiful congregation this morning. I'm sure you're way better looking than the next congregation in the second hour. Let's see what this does. It's, it's, it's supposed to be on this side. Anytime now, any day now. All right. Uh, is it going to work? I think so. Maybe. All right. Maybe. All right. Maybe there was not enough light. It's coming in. This is, here, there it is, there it is. There are you beautiful folks. Oh, wow. Nice teeth. Good one. Very good. It's coming. It's coming. All right, I'm waiting. I didn't know it would take this long. So <laughs> should have used my cell phone. <laughs> All right, so here it is. <clears throat> this is a snapshot of a moment of time in the service here at Desert Hills Baptist Church. But it's just a snapshot. It doesn't represent the totality of everyone's life. It doesn't represent every minute that was consumed by every consumer here in the crowd. It doesn't represent what will happen later uh, for some of you as you turn on the Super Bowl game and watch a few minutes and then get discouraged and then later revisit it because you want to see what is going to happen and then turn it off because you want to do something else and you just can't stomach it. But this represents just a snapshot. There it is. It's coming in a little better. A snapshot in time. Now, here's what I want you to understand with pain and suffering. The picture is a snapshot, not the totality of the whole. Now, as we and others face pain and suffering and loss, those moments are snapshot of a moment in our life, no matter how difficult it may be. And here's the encouragement that Paul gives to the Romans who were dealing with immense pain and suffering and loss. Notice what he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, those that were suffering in that time, that time he wanted them to understand was just a snapshot in their lives. At this present time, whatever you're facing right now, I want you to understand what you're facing is not anything compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other words, that snapshot isn't all there is to your life. At least, that's not all that you'll experience as a Christian. For the fact of the matter is, we have hope beyond this world. And yes, this world may be tough, and yes, this world may be, this world may be hard, and yes, it may seemingly be hopeless at times. But remember, for the believer, that our hope is not fulfilled in this world. It's not experienced. It's not fulfilled in this world. So whatever pain and suffering and loss 
we are enduring, it's a snapshot of our lives. Because the greater balance of our lives, whatever, however many years God chooses to give us, 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or 60 years or 70 years or 80 years or 90 years, whatever God allows into our lives, eternity is forever and forever and forever and forever. Secondly, we need to understand that every believer is waiting for the completion of their salvation. Now, notice I did ourselves to finish our salvation. If we have recognized that we are sinners in need of a Savior and have repented of our sins, falling on the grace and mercy of God, manifested in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in Jesus' payment for us, receiving His payment as our own by faith, we are saved according to the Word of God, but our salvation is not complete, and Paul explains that here in our text. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature, speaking of us, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, for the believer, there's coming a day when we'll be totally free from the bondage and the effects of sin in this world. And we call this glorification. We'll have a glorified body someday that will be incapable of sinning and doing wrong. But we're not there yet. And the Bible says this in Romans 8, 23, and not only they, but ourselves also. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, even grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You see, this world and all of its pain and all of its suffering and all of the loss is not all there is. We as Christians will experience glorification someday, totally be de being delivered from this world so we can endure pain and we can endure suffering and we can endure loss because God has given us the means to experience victory at least by giving us a hope that is away from this world. And then we see something else this morning. We see God's ministry to us as we face pain and suffering and loss in this world. First of all, God's Spirit testifies to us about our identity or our sonship. The Bible tells us, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We understand that God's Spirit leads God's children as they go through the highs and the lows of life. And then it says in verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage, uh, again, to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and God's spirit doesn't cause us to shudder towards God and the circumstances that we face in our life. But God's spirit endears us to our heavenly Father and testifies to us that we have a new identity, being adopted into God's family, and he's not just our father, he's our papa. He's our daddy. Who wants us to call upon him? And his spirit testifies that we're sons. 
For the Bible says the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. The Holy Spirit, capital S, bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. If you're truly born again, you've experienced the conviction of sin. You've experienced God's abhorrence uh, towards the sin that's in your life. You have felt uh, not just guilt, but you have felt conviction. The Spirit, the Bible says, reproves us of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit is the comforter. You've experienced comfort if you're saved. And you've also experienced this. If you are genuinely born again, the Spirit has testified. Let your spirit know, yes, I am a child of God. And that's a ministry to us. We see another ministry after the Bible says, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Bible says, and if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see, God's Spirit testifies to us about our hope. Our hope. You see, God's Spirit testifies that we are uh, children of God, but we are also heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Even when we suffer, God's Spirit testifies to us that we will be glorified and delivered from this world someday. And not only that, God's Spirit consoles and comforts and guides us in our difficulties. The Bible says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Did you get that? The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. I have been in places in life where I felt like nobody was there to encourage and I've cried out to God, and I've leaned on God. And many times in those moments, I could sense the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit consoling my heart. He helpeth in our infirmities. And then the Bible says this, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God's Spirit comforts and consoles and guides us as we're facing difficulty. He helps in our infirmities, our pain and suffering and loss, even to the point when we're so overwhelmed that we cannot pray. The Spirit utters our prayers to God. And then we see God's word testifies that everything will work towards our glorification. Now, here's a verse that's very familiar to all of us, but always not completely understood. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. Let's read it together. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But maybe we'll never see goodness in this life. Maybe what you're facing right now, and I don't mean to be fatalistic or I don't mean to be a wet blanket, but maybe the situation will be an enduring situation that you're facing. So you never divorce a verse from the context to which it's given. And so as we read on, in Romans chapter 8, it says, For whom he did foreknow, 
he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Philippians 1, verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That good work is the completion of our salvation when we get a glorified body someday and we experience that thing we know as glorification. So God's word testifies to every one of us as believers that everything that happens in our life is working towards our greater good and we may see some goodness in life. We may see and experience the comfort of God, and we will and we can experience those things, but the situation that we may be enduring may never change. Think about the martyrs. Think about uh, the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, almost every one of them facing a martyr's death. Most people would look at that and say, what good did that accomplish? Well, it ultimately accomplished their glorification. And then, as we wrap up the message this morning, some reminders to each of us as we reconcile the goodness and love of God with pain and suffering and loss. And these are just practical things to help you and those you're trying to minister to. First of all, we will not always have every answer this side of eternity. I say that, I've st stood by the bedside or the graveside of several hundred people over the years and I can honestly say that as people have asked me for answers, I've not always had them. I've not. And sometimes I question myself. But I do know, I do know this. God doesn't promise to remove all of our problems, but he does promise to be with us in the midst of them. Hey, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Secondly, and I don't mean to be fatalistic in saying this, but the pain may continue to endure. That husband may never change. That wife may never change. That circumstance may never change. That sickness may never go away. It's the reality of it. We live in a broken down world and we're broken down people as a result of the first sins entering into this world. And I wish I could wave my hands and everything would be okay, but that's not the case. Thirdly, acknowledge the pain. 
Understand that your feelings, understand that you're hurt, understand that you're suffering, understand that your loss is real, and travel as best you can through it with the Lord's help, as we've just mentioned today. Fourthly, let people feel their emotions. Don't always try to cheer them up. Remember, we can't get to the mountain until we go through the valley. And God created us with emotions, and to bottle them up may not always be healthy, and it won't always lead to happiness. So don't try to always fix somebody that seemingly has a problem. Next, everyone that looks okay is not always okay. Somebody said this, a little quip that I've tried to remember throughout the years, be kind to everyone because everyone's having a tough time. Doesn't the Bible say something like that? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. Next. The presence of others is a gift. You don't always have to know what to say when somebody is struggling and you're by their side, or you don't even have to say anything. Your presence is the most meaningful thing as you encourage others through difficult times. Next, there's no time limit for people recovering from pain, loss, and suffering. The phrase, time heals all wounds, does it really on this side of eternity? So don't rush people as they're dealing with their pain, suffering, and their loss. Next, be discerning when you use Scripture. Scripture is always comforting, but don't use Scripture to help people get over what they're facing necessarily. Or don't use Scripture to announce this is the reason why you're suffering. Don't do it. Don't do it. Next, be careful what you say. God get, never gives us more than we can handle. It's not always true. Let go and let God. Much easier said than done. They are in a better place. That may be so, but the person here is definitely not. And don't diminish someone's pain in light of your own. You lost a child, don't say to somebody that lost a wife or a husband after 60 years and say, my loss is greater than yours because at least you got to have yours for 60 years and I only had mine for 10. The things that people say. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then... Never imply that God may have a plan to replace what is lost. Somebody's lost a child. Well, God will give you another child. Somebody's lost a spouse. You're young enough, you can still marry again. My wife has said that if I die, she'll never remarry. 
She said, I won't do it. I'm, I just love you so much. And I don't know if that's true today, but um, uh, <laughs> I just won't ever remarry. And, and then she would joke about, she'd say, if something ever happens to you, I'm going to marry uh, Larry Arne, this, this uh, political, like the historical mind, and, and uh, I'm going to marry Larry, Larry Arne. Well, who would you marry? Taylor Swift. <laughs> Shouldn't have asked. <laughs> Never implied that God may have a plan to replace what is lost, and then next... Be a light. Be a light. Here's what Jesus said. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know what I have understood as I've dealt with people that are in the process of deconstructing or have deconstructed or have questions? They don't expect me to have every answer. But you know what they expect me to be? They expect me to be sincere. They expect me to show humanity. They expect me to show kindness. They expect me to be loving when others may not be. They expect me to be forgiving when others may not be. So let your light shine. So that they will glorify your Father, the Bible says which is in heaven. Now, how do we reconcile the goodness and love of God with pain, suffering, and loss? Have perspective. Encourage others to have perspective. God gets the blame for things that are obviously not his fault. Understand that sin has marred everything in this world, including us. And being a Christian doesn't mean that we will suffer less. Have perspective. Understand that this world is not all there is. And understand that God has promised deliverance from this world and for the believer. Understand that God has given the believer the Holy Spirit that reminds us of our identity, testifies of our hope, and comforts and consoles and guides us in our pain, suffering, and difficulty. In a world that is not good, the goodness of God can be seen all around us. In a world that is absent of love, his love is manifested all around us. I like to read. In one of my favorite books that I've read in the last 30 years as a, a Christian is a book called Who Is This Man by John Ortberg. I've read other books on Christology, and, and they're all good, and I love information. I read a book... Uh, the Life and Times of Jesus Christ by Alfred Erdersheim, a man that was a, a, grew up as a, a Jewish man and then converted to Christianity, and he has all kinds of facts that only somebody from Israel might have and be able to convey and relate. Great book, was a tremendous help to me. I read a, another book by Leonard Sweet called uh, Jesus, a Theography, wonderful book. I've read several other books that deal with uh, Christology or the, the life of Christ and so on, but, but the one that stands head and shoulders above them all for me is who is this man? And in the book, Ortberg presents how the person, the historical character of Jesus Christ changed the world. In fact, it changed, uh, the Christians changed how people dealt with children. In fact, the word child in Latin means seen but not heard. 
And children were, were looked at as pieces of property. They, we call it chattel. Women were thought of as chattel. You didn't like your wife, you could trade her for a new one. Don't get any ideas, fellas. <laughs> but that's how it was. Women had no rights. Children had no rights. And, and, and Jesus elevated children. In fact, he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. He gave them a place. He gave women a place. Uh, he, he promoted education. He promoted humanity. In, in the times of Jesus, if you were sick, you were stuck out on a street to die. But Christians would take these sick people in and try to nurse them back to health. And Christians are the founders of hospitals. And really, everything that we know in Western civilization that is good and wholesome and decent originated with the followers of Jesus Christ. We are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. We are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let's ask God this morning to help us as we do that.